Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We read in verses 1 through 7. Short passage this week. Last week was 36 verses, and this week is 6 verses, 7 verses. So God has given us a little bit of variety in the breakdown of the passage. And you'll notice as we read this passage, and this is why we preach through books, there are themes that keep on recurring. How do you know, how do we know that we're preaching the priorities that God has and not the priorities that we have? Partly by going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books, and seeing what God continually returns to. We call this expository preaching, but it's taking God's, not just the words that he's given us, but the arrangement of the words, and saying, let's follow that. So that we can see the themes and the patterns and the emphasis that God has and reflect those. And the best way that can happen is by faithfully preaching his word as he gave it to us. And so now we're in chapter 17, and verse 1, they have begun living off of manna from heaven. God has provided for them miraculously, but they're still in the wilderness. In verse 17, it says, in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, the Bible says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sinai, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod, with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa, And Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God is leading the people through the wilderness, and they're not doing a very good job at it, which is why they're in the wilderness. It's the whole point. No surprises here. It's not, man, if they'd just been right, they wouldn't have to be here. They're going to be right because they're here. They're eating manna, and they're on their way to Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, let's bring the story back. Do you remember when Moses was out in the wilderness in the beginning of the story and he saw a burning bush? That was Mount Sinai. It's called Mount Horeb. And God says, I'm going to bring you back here. This is Exodus, I think, 3. He says, I'm going to bring you back here with your people. All the stuff has happened between them, the ten plagues, Red Sea. Now they're headed back. Now they're close. They're in the wilderness of Sinai, where Sinai is. Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same place. And so God is bringing them to Mount Sinai. It's called the mountain of God, where he's going to meet with them and give them his his plan. But along the way, bad things happen, just like in this world. Suffering is a part of the world. It's a part of life. 
Anyone tells you that it's not, it's trying to sell you something. Uh, it's part of life. Any religion that can't deal with suffering is not worth having. And I believe, and I think the Bible teaches, Christianity is the only one that deals accurately with suffering. And we see in this passage, they don't have any water, but God's going to provide water for his sinful people. God's going to keep his covenant. So look at the passage. It's interesting because it looks like just a bunch of people complaining because they don't have something. But it's actually more serious than that. So first, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey according to the commandment of the Lord. They get to this place and there's no water. Now, it's hard for us to imagine it because we live in the East Coast where all you have to do is basically scoop out a pile of dirt with your hands and there's water. Your basement's probably flooding right now. But in this country, there's no water anywhere. In fact, sometimes if you find plants, you think, oh, there's water. No, the plants ate them. The plants ate the water. That's one of the illusions of the desert is if you find vegetation, you'll find water. Not always. The vegetation's already taken. So it's just this constant dryness. Have you ever been out west where they don't have grass in their yards? It's an amazing thing to see. You're like, wait a minute. You have rocks in your front yard. That's just normal. This is worse. This is Saudi Arabia. This is just flat desert. And it's been like this for a while now. It's not like, well, just go a little bit further, we'll find some water. It's, it's the idea that there's no water anywhere, and yet God's leading them. So everything's going to be okay, right? Problem is, God led them to a place with no water. He was leading them away from water to a place with no water. In other words, God brought them into suffering. He didn't bring them out of suffering. He caused the suffering. We have to recognize that God's in control here, and that means when bad things happen, when bad situations arise, God's still in control. So it says here that they went out of the, on their journey in the wilderness, from the wilderness of Sinai according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water. Now, God knew there was no water there, yet he still took them there. So when they started to thirst, God wanted that. God wanted them to have suffering. That's not a prosperity gospel. That's a gospel, that, that's a Bible truth that says God will intentionally bring you into suffering. That's hard to hear. Because we're always, what's our primary goal a lot of times? How do we make life better? How do we get out of suffering? How do we make problems go away? What's the self-help industry all about? You fixing your problems. This is saying God's going to give you problems. And if God gives them to you, a self-help book's not going to get you out of them. God leads Israel into suffering. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God cares more about you listening to him than you being comfortable. God is not really, from what I can see in the scripture, especially in this passage, God's not really concerned about their comfort as much as about their attention. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is, you don't really pay attention to God when you're happy, but you do when you're suffering. And so God will bring suffering to wake you up, and that's what he does to the children of Israel. Partly, to reveal sin. The people of Israel were just as sinful at the beginning of this chapter as they are at the end, but they didn't know it. 
And now God's saying, let me show you how bad you are by bringing suffering into your life. So if you're suffering right now, part of that is God showing you how bad you are. And suffering comes in different forms. It can come from physical suffering. It can come from relationship suffering. It can come from having to take care of kids, right? Having to watch people try to take care of kids. What is that showing? It's showing what's wrong with you. Showing your impatience. It's showing your self-centeredness. It's showing you want things your way, and when you don't get them your way, you get mad. That's what God's saying to the children of Israel here. So what do the people of Israel do? Do they cry out for help? No. This passage is interesting. It's actually a lawsuit. So look in verse 2. Therefore, the people contended with Moses. Now, the word contend there is a legal term. You look at other places used in the Bible and the meaning of the word, it's not just they argued. It means they've got a formal complaint. They want to bring a trial. They want to bring a lawsuit to Moses. And what's the lawsuit? Give us water that we may drink. And so Moses says to them, why do you sue me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Tempt here means put on trial. They are putting God on trial. Now, they say they're putting Moses on trial, but they're actually putting God on trial. And what's Moses, what has he done wrong? What's the charge being brought here? Now, we know what the charge, what the outcome, they want to kill him. So it's a capital offense. So it says they contended, they brought a charge to Moses, and they said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us? Now, they weren't bringing the charge of murder. They were saying, you've betrayed the country. Criminal incompetence. You are so bad at your job that we're going to die because of it. So we're going to kill you first. It's a pretty serious charge, isn't it? And you can see that it's, that it, it's becoming a trial because God tells them to bring up the elders to witness the event. Well, that's a formal way of, of, of uh, dealing with, with lawsuits at this time. So Moses is the target of the lawsuit. It's a capital crime. It's betraying the country. It's leading them to this place where they're going to die. And so they bring up this charge and say, we're going to kill you first. But who are they actually putting on trial? They're putting God on trial. Now notice the theme in these past chapters. He brought them to the bitter waters of Merah to test them. Then he brings them where there's no food. He gives them manna to test them. Why is he doing that? Because he's God, and they're his people. But look what happens here. They've learned. Isn't that great? They've learned something. But instead of becoming better, they turn the tables and say, now we're going to put God on trial. He's been putting us on trial. Now it's his turn. You see the evil that's happening? It's not just people who are really thirsty or just complaining. It's people saying, God, you're not doing what we want you to do, and you're wrong. We're going to bring a trial. Now, they covered it up by saying, it's Moses. We're not against God. We're against Moses. And Moses calls him out, and he says, why do you contend with me? Why are you charging me? Why do you actually tempt the Lord? C.S. Lewis has a book called God in the Dock. Now, we don't know what dock means because we're, uh, we do things differently in America. But have you ever seen a courtroom in England where they have a caged-off area where the defendant sits? That's called the dock. And so the defendant sits in this, this kind of roped-off or uh, fenced-off area. 
C.S. Lewis puts it, it says, God is in that dock. God is a defendant on the trial. God, the creator of the world, the rescuer of his people, the mighty judge who has provided for them, is now having to sit in defense of himself. By who? By a bunch of people who've been slaves, who've been rescued and cared for, now are rising up to be God. Now, does that sound like you? No, of course not. You never say, God, how could you do this to me? Where was God when I needed him? Why hasn't God changed things? What does that say? I expected something from God. He didn't do it. God, give an account for yourself. Tell me why you didn't do what I thought you should do. Things didn't work out like I thought they were. I'm a Christian. I followed the scripture and they didn't work out right. God, where are you? That's what they say at the end. Is the Lord among us or not? Prove yourself, God. Show up and defend yourself. Suffering will either make you kneel before God for help or stand up and say, tell me why I'm suffering. You're supposed to make things easier, but you haven't. You've made things worse. And so they put God on trial. God was not behaving like he was expected to. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as an accused person approached his judge. But for us, for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, the man is the judge, God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge, this man. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Is that what you're doing? Have you said, God, tell me why you did it and I'll accept it. Give, your, give a good defense, and I'll accept the defense. You see the role reversal? Israel, who had been slaves and now are slaves to God, they did not serve Egypt, now they serve God, are saying to God, now it's our turn. Our turn to judge you. Our turn to decide if things are going the way they should. That's why it's called, he names the place Masa and Meribah, which means testing and contention the place of God's trial. That's evil. And that's why God brought it, to show them who they are. And so God says, you want a trial? We'll have one. So he says, so Moses goes to him and Moses complains, what shall I do with this people? Why'd you give them to me? Later in the Bible, in Psalms and in Numbers, God says, you failed here too. Tells Moses that he failed. And this is why. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. God, why'd you put me in this position? I'm just doing what you told me to, and no one's listening to me. I'm doing right. Why am I suffering? Because they won't listen. You see how the charges can be twisted? I did what you said, and nothing happened. I followed your word, and now I'm going to be paying for it. I thought if I did the right thing, you would help me. Moses says, I did the right thing, I haven't complained to you, and I'm about to be killed for it. Behind this is, is Moses saying, why have you failed me, God? Why have you let me down? Is that you? Have you said, I obeyed the Bible, I believe the right thing, I don't live in sin, so why am I suffering because of other people? 
I'm trying to lead. I'm trying to do the right thing. And now people are rejecting me. People are causing me trouble. It's again saying, God, defend yourself. Defend yourself against these charges. And so what does God do? What should God do? If we were to imagine God in person, and you walked up to God and said, God, you're on trial. Defend yourself. God would say, uh, I'm going to kill you. End of story. But what does God do? And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people, stand in trial, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Why? Because that's how lawsuits were educated. The elders, you went before the elders, and the elders decided. That's how the ancient world did things. So God says, let's have this trial. Go before them. Go out in front of everybody. Make this public. Take the elders to witness. Also take in your hand the rod which you struck the river. And go to this rock in Horeb, so on Mount Sinai, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. So God says, you've accused me of not taking care of you. You've said in, this verse, in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? God says, I'll show you. I'll vindicate myself. I will stand in your trial. I will offer in a defense. Watch what I do. Take the elders so you can see what God will do. And he publicly vindicates himself. God is present. God did care for them. God kept the covenant. What was the covenant? What was the promise that God had made? I will make you into a great people. If they all die in the desert, that's not going to happen, is it? And they said, God, you're not going to keep your covenant. And God says, no, watch, I will. I will keep my covenant. Everybody gather around and watch me perform a miracle to show you that I keep my end of the bargain. And he did this before a group of whiny, selfish people. He put himself on trial. He allowed himself to be on trial, and he vindicated himself publicly. God showed mercy in the face of their sin. You see, you see the process here? They say, we don't believe you. We don't trust you. In fact, we want to stand as judge over you. And God says, here's some water. Let me take care of you. That doesn't make sense, does it? Wait a minute. Does this mean that all you have to do is just be as bad as you want and God will take care of you? That's called the gospel. It's exactly what the Bible's teaching you. So what has happened? He says, take the, in your hand the rod which you struck the river. Which river is that? Well, there's only one river in that part of the country. It's the Nile River. Why did he strike the river? What was the point of all that? Egypt defied God and said, Jehovah, I don't know who you are. We have our own gods. And so God says, watch what I do to your gods. And he struck the river and it turned to blood. And then it produced frogs and then gnats. And all this bad stuff happened as judgment. The rod was a rod of judgment for people who defied God. And God says, now take that same rod. Take the rod of judgment that you judged Egypt with when they rebelled Go before the people who are rebelling against me and do what with it? Strike the rock. And what will happen? Not river into blood, but water in a desert. You see what the paradox here, the contradiction? Egypt got struck down for doing the same exact thing that Israel is doing. And God says, 
here's how the trial is going to work. You're not on trial. I'm on trial. And here's what I'm going to do. Take the rod that I should judge you with, and instead I'll give you water with. He struck the rock, not like Egypt. He struck the rock instead of the people. You see the mercy that God's showing? He said, you should end up like Pharaoh at the bottom of the ocean. Instead, here's some water. You should end up like the firstborn son, dead in your house at night. Instead, here's some water. You should lose all your cattle. You should lose all your stuff. You should be decimated as a country. Instead, here's some water. God struck the rock instead of the people. He said, I will stand before you on this rock. And when you strike it, water will come out that the people may drink. Now, here's what the Bible tells us about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about this passage. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. Remember the Red Sea where they walked through the middle of it? All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. That's manna. It was real food, but it came from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them that food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Spiritual there means there was no water, and then God worked, and there was water. Supernatural, miracle, whatever you want to call it. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now, wait a minute. What? That, that rock that Moses hit was Christ? That doesn't make sense. What is he saying here? God should have killed the Israelites like he killed the Egyptians. Moses should have taken the rod and struck the people. But he didn't. So how did God end up giving them good stuff? Because Christ was the rock. Moses, God, struck Christ instead of the people. So how good did the people have to be? Not good at all. Doesn't matter what they did. That's God's point here. He's saying, I'm not judging the people. Judging the rock. Striking the rock. I'm breaking the rock. That's what Isaiah 53 tells us as it continues this theme. See, the Bible is all tied together. It's all talking about the same thing. It's all talking about Christ. Christ was here in the desert. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. He was smitten by God. When? Right here. He was that rock. Jesus was the reason they got water in the desert. Because God said, I'm going to hit Christ instead of hitting you. I'm going to beat Christ instead of beating you. I'm going to break Christ instead of breaking you. We sing the song that, that, that uses these words, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. Christ, the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. 
None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Christ is that rock. When Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's continuing what's talked about right here. The broken rock provides water for the people. And so the broken rock of Christ provides water for us. Aren't you glad you don't get judged for what you do? Aren't you glad that you don't have to answer for your crimes, for your reactions, for your treatment of God? But it's even better than that. Jesus says, he references in John chapter 7, and Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, the people didn't make up the problems. They were thirsty for real. They were suffering. They didn't just say, they weren't just looking down on life and making, you ever seen people, they just sort of make mountains out of molehills? No, sometimes you've got real problems. Sometimes you really are going to die. You see, the test and the suffering was real. Your suffering is real. Eastern religions are going to tell you that suffering is an illusion. If you want to study Buddhism and things like that, they're going to tell you that suffering is an illusion. No, it's not an illusion. If you go to a counselor who tells you that things, everything's in your head, stop. Suffering is real. Suffering breaks people. Suffering kills people. What's the answer? Jesus stood up and said, if any of you are suffering, if any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let him go to that rock in the desert that's been broken open, it's been suffering, and waters of life will come out. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Old Testament is only there to show us what's going to happen. What's the point of this chapter? to show us a sinful people receiving grace from God because somebody paid for it. And now we who are suffering can receive water from God because Christ suffered. How do we do that? We live by the Spirit. Christ is gone into heaven. Where's this water? Because I'm thirsty right now. Where's the water? How do we get the water? Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit. Oh, it's not real water. I need real water. See, that's what we want. We see blessings as I have a problem. God gives me the answer to that problem. I need money. Can Jesus give me money? I'm sick. Can God heal me? But Jesus says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. God's given you the answer to the need you actually have, not the need you think you have. You think it's sickness that's causing you to get down. You think it's relationships. You think it's lack of relationships. No, it's not. Their problem was not lack of water in the desert. Their problem was a lack of God. Jesus is saying, I fixed that in a way that they can't even imagine. They live by the Spirit. God is with us. You see, if you believe on Christ, like he says here, if you come to Christ, he comes with you. He is in you by the Spirit. That's what they didn't have back then. They were pointing forward to what we have now. We live by the Spirit because God is with us. 
Now, many of us don't feel like that's enough. We say, yeah, great, but I'm still suffering. You live by faith, not by sight. When Jesus says, come unto me and you'll have life, this concern the spirit, Jesus, the creator of the world, is telling you what you need. He's telling you why you're not happy. He's saying, you're not happy because you don't have me. You don't have the spirit. Will you listen to him? Will you say, everything I think I need, I don't know what that is. It's wrong. Jesus tells me I need the spirit. And I don't know what that looks like, and I can't see the spirit, and it doesn't seem like it's going to fix any of my problems, but Jesus said it. You see, if you don't accept that, you've put Christ on trial. You said, prove it. Prove that's what I need, because I don't think that's what I need. So I say I need something else, and you say I need this. Let me see the evidence. Putting God on trial is telling God what you need and expecting him to give it to you. God being the judge, God being the king, and you accepting that is saying, what does God tell me I need? And here's what you need. You need the spirit in you. And how does that change you? The spirit undoes sin in us. You see, sometimes we think about forgiveness and sort of what Christ has done for us is God just saying, you're okay now. And we're not going to think about, we're not going to talk about the bad things you did. That's partly true. But forgiveness and the, the work of Christ is undoing things. When they were in the desert, when the water came out, they weren't thirsty anymore. It undid their thirst. They were no longer dehydrated. So when the Spirit comes into us, it undoes sin in us. The Bible speaks of this, Psalm 119. How can a young man cleanse his ways? What is cleansing? Being bad and undoing the badness. Being dirty and getting rid of it. Not just not talking about it or forgetting it, but undoing it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. No, wait, your word? I thought it was about the spirit. You see, the Bible is very practical. It doesn't just say believe in this sort of spirit you can't see and just sort of hope and just imagine. It's very specific. Ephesians 5 says, shows us the connection here. It's talking about husbands, but it's really talking about the church. It says, husbands love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? By being broken for the church and gave himself for her, was struck for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see, sometimes we feel like suffering is going to break us permanently. There's things in our past that have hurt us and still hurt us. There are people who have hurt us and are still hurting us. And even if they died, we would still be damaged. What's God giving you here? He's saying, I can undo the damage. <clears throat> Suffering isn't going to leave a permanent flaw on you. The Spirit can undo what's wrong with you. You can't undo what's wrong with you. And other people can't undo what's wrong with you. And if the people who hurt you started being nice to you, you're still hurt. And if the sickness goes away, you still suffer from it. But Christ is saying, I can do something supernatural. You think making water come out of a rock is a big deal? Watch me undo the damage in your life. Watch me undo the damage in your soul. I can wash you by the water of the word. 
I can undo what you've done to yourself. How? By faith. God makes it so simple that it seems too easy. What do we need to do to get this? Where do we need to go to get this? Do we need to go to a place in the desert? Do we need to go to church? Do we need to go somewhere? Do we need to do something? Do we need to work hard? Do we need to forgive people? No. You believe. You believe that what God has done in the Spirit is for you. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the promise of God, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. This is in Hebrews, but what's he talking about? He's talking about Moses right here in this passage when they tested God. When your fathers tested me, tried me, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. For we have become partakers of Christ. Who is Christ? God himself. You got problems? You can partake of Christ. You can become united with Christ, with God himself. If we hold beginning of our, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The gospel was preached to Moses and the children of Israel. What was the gospel? God will provide for you at his expense. Trust him. God will be broken for you. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter the rest. Do you believe? Because if you don't, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your suffering will consume you. Your suffering will break you. It will crush you. That's the difference between life and death. Do you believe the word or do you reject it? You see, God's done all the work. God broke the rock. Christ paid the price. Christ gives the spirit. The spirit undoes sin. What do we do? Believe that it's true. You see, the gospel has come to us. The good news. So we've already got the bad news. The bad news is we're terrible people who put God on trial every time something goes wrong. The terrible news is your childhood has messed you up. Your parents messed you up, and now you're messing your kids up. You can't undo things in the past. That's the bad news. The good news is Christ will undo them. That's the gospel being preached to you. Christ has been struck for you. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? If you do, you have rest. You can enter into that rest. But if you reject it, you'll wander in the wilderness until you die there. How do you get over trauma? You don't. God does. Do you believe that? Or do you need to see some evidence? You need God to give you more, to give you a sign. Do you need people to fix you? Or will you accept that what God wrote in his word is true? You will submit to that. You will be put on trial. And you will say, Christ paid for it. And rivers of life are going to come out of that. Christ has done the work. You're called to believe it. Will you repent of your sins and believe in Christ? Let's pray.